listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you, the gentleman on my show today, a very talented guy who's, uh, who's busy. He just was in California doing gigs with his band Zebra. He has some more shows coming up on the East Coast with Zebra. He has some solo shows coming up, and he has uh, the music of Pink Floyd coming up in Lafayette, Louisiana, and my guest is Randy Jackson. How you doing, Randy? Hi, Steve. How you doing? Good. Uh, tell me about the, uh, I want to hear about the music of Pink Floyd. I saw you post that on Facebook, and I know you've done stuff in the past with, like, Zeppelin and stuff like that with uh, with the orchestra, I guess, but tell me how you got into that, because that, that kind of stuff fascinates me. Yeah, I was, um, it was like 1996, and uh, I got a phone call from my agent, uh, Jim McGinnis, who said he had gotten a call from a guy who had booked Zebra while we were on our first tour, and wanted to know if I might be interested in singing Led Zeppelin with an orchestra. And, uh, you know, it sounded good to me. And uh, I went down to Virginia where they were doing a trial run of the show. And um, and I, I did it, and I've been doing that show ever since. And actually, like, I think they did the Pink Floyd the first time a year and a half later and asked me if I wanted to do that one too. And so I said, yeah, no problem. Pink Floyd's, Pink Floyd's great. So, so what is that like, though, when you're, you know, because you're used to being in front, it's you and two other guys in Zebra, or you're doing an acoustic show. So when all of a sudden you're sitting there and it's uh, it's got to throw you off a little bit because there's probably so much sound going around and you're used to being the lead guitarist and the singer. So what is it like and how did you acclimate to it? Well, I played in, in orchestra all through school. I played the baritone horn. So I was used to that, that environment already. Um, I been playing uh, since I was in fourth grade and I played right up until uh, college when uh, when Zebra formed um, and so it wasn't really uh, too much of a stretch for me to get up with all those people but it certainly is a different environment than Zebra that's for sure uh, and you know I'm really I play guitar a little bit but I'm basically just singing at those shows so I think the uh, the thing for me was I really needed to become more of an MC than I had been with Zebra and, uh, and, you know, it, you know, it, it, uh, it helped me get those chops up pretty good. You know, I needed to learn what to say between songs and not just be standing there like a goof, you know, it so, is, it is crazy. I have, I have a, I have a background in stand up, so I know what it's like just being by myself. But if you put me in front of a band, I'd be like, you know, wait, you know, I'm just, it's about me. So it must be different for you because learning people don't understand, you know, singing is one thing and as you said, emceeing and getting the chops is, is completely different because it's a whole interaction and it's not like the band's going, okay, well, you want to hear this next song. It's for you. You really have to get them to like you. Especially in a symphony environment and, you know, when you're doing the music of one band, you need to talk to the audience about, you know, their fandom of the band and yours, you know, and uh, and you have to feed off the audience, you know. I have to make sure I'm, I'm, I'm hearing them well, you know, so I can uh, interact with them. And, uh, you know, the places we usually do those shows are theaters, so it's not so big that I can't, you know, respond to what somebody says. And, and, you know, everybody in the place will hear whatever somebody yells, so it can be pretty funny at times. Now, what made you pick up the baritone as a kid? Because you don't think of a rock star, you know, playing the baritone to start. Like, my sister played the cello and the French horn, and she was the furthest thing from, you know, a rocker ever. But what the baritone, she, I wouldn't... Assume that because everyone I know in bands has always picked up that guitar right away. Yeah, well, I, I was playing guitar at that time, but the band had no guitar, 
And what I actually wanted to do was play drums. And uh, they had too many drummers. There were like 30 drummers, and there was like, you know, maybe 15 people playing instruments. And so, uh, you know, this was in, in elementary school. So the, the teacher started pulling people off the drums, and I was one of them, and, you know, said, uh, I want you to play this baritone horn. I'd never even heard of it before, you know. So I, I went down to uh, this music store in Campos Music, and to get a baritone horn, you know, but this was after everybody had already really rented out all the instruments that they had for, you know, all the public schools down in New Orleans, and they didn't have one, but but they said they had something similar up in their attic, and so they 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 brought down what looked like it was it had two two bells on it, you know, there was a big one and a little one on the side. It didn't have three valves; it had five valves, and it was called a double-belled five-valved euphonium. You know, now it was it was about the same size as a baritone horn, you know, width and length, but it was a little heavier because of the extra bell and everything. But I played that all the way through till seventh grade before I actually got a real baritone horn. And, uh, and funny enough, the uh, the son of the guy that owned the music store was also playing baritone horns. So we were, we'd sit right next to each other. And he, he was a lot bigger than me. He should have had the one I had, but he, he of course he didn't. He had a great baritone horn, but uh, I'm still in touch with him to the, till today, Lloyd Campo. And, uh, you know, we've had a lot of good times together. So, so what was, what was your household like as a kid? You know, what were your musical influences? And did you have a New Orleans influence because you have jazz? Or, or what was your influences when you were a kid and as you started getting older and developing as a musician? You know, my parents loved Al Hurt and Pete Fountain, and they had their records at the house when we were growing up. Um, the one, But the one record that really stuck with me that they had was a Les Paul and Mary Ford greatest hits. And so I guess my brother and I were about four or five years old and we used to love that album. We run around the house and play listening to it. And it was like, had a lot of energetic mu music to it. And, uh, so that was really kind of my first intro into, you know, any kind of popular music. And, uh, and then when I was eight, eight years old, uh, this girl who lived down the block, Linda Rosenbaum, she came to my house one day and, She's standing there and she says, you've got to listen to this. You have to listen to this. And I said, well, what is it? She had a little 45, you know, and it was, uh, it was the Beatles. It was, I want to hold your hand. And I saw her standing there, you know, and I, I put it on and that was, uh, that was kind of it. You know, I, I was like, I couldn't even understand what, what I want to hold your hand. I couldn't, even, I couldn't get the beat for some reason. That's what I clearly remember was that even though I listened to all this Les Paul and Mary Ford stuff, that it was just different the way that the, the rhythms were and I, I couldn't put my finger up but I knew I liked it a lot you know I just loved the way it sounded and uh, and that just kind of hooked me into the rock and roll the next thing I knew my parents were buying my brother and I tickets and taking us to see the Beatles in 19 you know 64 and uh, it was pretty amazing what explain that to me because you know i mean I, i'm i'm 60 i just turned 60 and i used to go to all the concerts at the spectrum in philly but the beatles weren't touring 
you know, I mean, I sold the Who, you know, the the Trample Tour. I sold these great bands in somewhat their prime. But what is it like, you know, I talk to people who see the Beatles. I mean, as someone who, you're not the first musician that said hearing the Beatles has completely, completely, like, changed their lives. Like, holy shit, like, it's the Beatles. What was it like, though, being being there and seeing the Beatles? Was it, is, is it fanatical and just as amazing as people said? Well, yeah, it was, you know, it, it, I guess it was my first experience with, you know, actually seeing some reality of what I was seeing on TV, you know, translated to a live performance. The girls were going crazy. Um, they jumped onto the field. Um, there were two lines of policemen trying to stop them from getting on the, on the stage or near the stage, and they broke through both of those. And the Beatles ran off the stage, you know, just really like was exactly what you see in uh, a hard day's night. But it was the real deal. And I remember there was a 16 year old girl and her family right in front of where we were. Now, we, my parents didn't have us like really close and nobody, nobody was on the field. Nobody was, you know, they didn't have seating on the field. Everybody was in stands. It was a football stadium, a, a kind of a 15,000 seat stadium, I guess it was. And, uh, and so, but they they had us up towards the top of the uh, the stadium, and there was a family right in front of us. And the girl, the, the teenage girl, was going nuts because she wanted to go down on the field with the other girls, and her father was holding her by the arm, you know? and uh, and she's going, "Let me go! Let me go! I hate you! I hate you! And, oh, oh, I love you! I love you! Let me go!" You know, it's just I mean, it was right out of a freaking movie it was just you know crazy you know and you know as a kid i'm watching this and just you know wow this is you know, it's really it's crazy it's cool you know and i was nine i guess nine years old when when, when i saw this you know and uh and and you know the excitement was you know it was real i mean from the time that that record came out because I mean, I had heard Elvis and I had heard other kind of rock stuff, but nothing grabbed me like that, you know. And um, it was really the music, you know, and and it, it was just it was kind of magic, you know. But to me, you know, they they'd come out with three records the first year, you know, and then three more the next year. It was just like, you know, well, OK, well, this is what's normal. You know, this is what. All the musicians do, you know. I mean, little did you know. I have any idea that you know I'd be sitting here with you, looking back on that and that you know the feat of writing all that music, you know, that quick or putting those records together is just I I I, I can't even imagine, you know, another group doing it. It's just just even the output was just incredible. So so when did you start deciding to have a rock band? What, you know, what, at what age? Because I know you had a band before Zebra, but when did, I mean, you probably had a bunch of bands because all those kids back in high school always jump bands and you know someone and, oh, I can't go practice and they wouldn't show up. But when did you decide that you wanted to start a band? Well, it really at that time, you know, at, when I was nine years old, uh, the girl that came down and brought me the record and I, we couldn't. I wanted to play Beatles songs, you know, it'd be great to play them, but I couldn't play them. I didn't even know how to play the guitar. Uh, and I had a chord book, but I had, I could play the piano a little bit. We wrote three, we wrote three songs on the piano, uh, lyrics in the whole nine yards when we were like nine or 10 years old. And 
that was the last songwriting I did until really Zebra, you know, because after that, you know, I, I, I got into the guitar. I wanted to, you know, of course, you wanted to have a band, and I was in several bands, you know, throughout uh, junior high and high school. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I was in college that uh, I really, I think, you know, I was kind of at a crossroads of what I was going to, what, what, what am I going to do? Am I going to go to school or am I going to be in a band? You know, Zebra was already playing. And, um, you know, I had done a year with Felix's band, Shepherd, uh, Shepherd's Bush, the band you were referring to. And, and, and I had been introduced back again to originals. You know, he, we did all of Felix's songs then. So it got me back into writing. And, and I think it was when I went to my, uh, my college, uh, music director and told him that, you know, or he had heard that I was, you know, that the band Zebra was doing, doing pretty good. We had just started playing. It was like 1975 and we had done like one or two three months playing and he wanted to know about it, you know? And so I was ta telling him, you know, about the band and what we did and everything. And, uh, and he said, listen, he says, you know, if you've got a chance to, to actually play and make some money, go do it. He says, you know, forget about school right now. He says, you can always come back here. You know, your credits are good for seven years. <laughs> I said, Oh man, that's a lifetime. You know? So, uh, so I left school and just, you know, focused on Zebra at that point. So I think that was the when I really got serious about it, you know. And I think that was the, the time when my parents knew I was serious about it, too, really, really going to pursue that. You know, they'd always been supportive, but now my dad wanted to, uh, you know, he wanted to do some investigation and see if this was really even a, a thing to be done. And he actually hired a... Uh, a writer from the Dallas Morning News to come and like watch the band, you know, like a secret agent. I, we knew it was, I knew something was with this woman because we'd seen her at a couple of gigs and it was all kids, you know, they were playing in schools, you know, it was pretty funny, but he wanted to know. And so, you know, she wrote him a report that, uh, you know, he, I guess he was happy with and, uh, you know, not that I needed his permission, but he he just was really curious. You know, do these guys even have a chance? I guess so he could talk to me. Uh, you know, on some sort of level about whether I should do it or not. He played music also for a while. He played when he was like nineteen. Played drums, and he uh, he played with Bob Wills and the play, Texas Boy Playboys back in uh, you know the thirties, maybe yeah, late thirties. And he uh, up in North Louisiana with Bob Wills would use pickup bands, you know. Now, now, what was the scene like in New Orleans? You know, you, you were doing a mix of originals and covers, I'm guessing, because back then, it's like, you know, in Philadelphia later, we had a good music scene. But also, there are a lot of places had bands that had covers, and the story of people always slipping an original with a cover, because people, I always tell young comics, like, if I'm having a good set, and I do a joke that doesn't work, the crowd's not going to go, oh, we hate you now. Like, if you're sitting there as a band, I'm sure, you play a Zeppelin song, and then you do an original, and then you go do a, another Zeppelin song, they're not going to mind. But what was what was the scene like in New Orleans? Because I know you eventually left to go to Long Island, but what was New Orleans like at that time? Well, there was a great rock scene in New Orleans. And when we first, when, when 
Guy and I had the idea to go out and do some covers. You know, Guy and I had gotten together. Felix wasn't in the picture. His band had broken up at that point. Uh, the Shepherd's Bush. Uh, and he was kind of like dejected about that whole thing and sulking a lot. But uh, but we were using his place to practice. Guy and I were doing that. And, uh, uh, and the, but the scene was great. Uh, there were a lot of rock bands and they were playing consistently and they, and I, and we owed Felix's brother some money so I said Felix why don't you come come play bass we don't have a bass player you know and uh, we owed him for this PA system he had bought for us you know and uh, and the scene was good and we went out and you know we would go out and see a lot of these different bands and so we knew what people kind of were listening to we knew what we liked and we picked a whole bunch of different covers by different bands and, and went out and started playing. At the same time, we were doing originals. You know, I had started writing. And, you know, the thing is, when we went out, we, we, would, we wouldn't really announce this is our song, this is one of ours, or anything like that. We would just play the song, you know. It, that just seemed, I, I think, cooler, because you're kind of begging for them to, you know, tell you how great the song was you know what would you think about my song you know <laughs> oh that's really 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 you know he, he, that's not an honest answer you know and uh and so it, it really kind of worked out because if you finished playing your set you would and somebody mentioned what was that song that you played you know and then they describe what they remembered of it it was your song that you knew that you were getting an honest honest feedback at that point you know unsolicited and uh it really helped with what we eventually became all the originals we would play in our set. We would discard songs, keep other songs in the set, uh, maybe focus more on writing in, in a certain direction. And, um, you know, that's the way we did it. It really kind of came in handy in, up here in the north because there were some club owners in New Jersey especially who told us or, or had a rule, no no originals. You, know, you don't play originals in our club. Well, it was never a problem because, you know, you just played them anyway. And, you know, they asked, you know, who they never asked. Right. You make it uh, up. <laughs> they never asked whose was that because we never made a big deal out of it, you know. Uh, so so what, I, made, what made you move to New York? What made you, I mean, were you guys, you were doing fine in New Orleans. So why the jump to New York? Did you feel that it would make help the band grow or become bigger? Or because that's that's a big move. You know, you're going from a city, and I was I was in New Orleans two years. It's completely different. You know, I, mean, I grew up on the East Coast, and I lived in I lived in LA for many years, which is different. But New Orleans is just a different animal. You know, I mean, I, we were down there. But what made you decide? Was it because the music scene was bigger, and you thought you could get bigger breaks, or really wasn't it the main reason? believe it or not, was because, like I said, we were watching all these other bands down there. And there was a band called the Paper Steamboat who had been around way before us. They, they, they had actually been uh, together since the 60s. And uh, they had uh, morphed into uh, another band, uh, that, and they had gotten a record deal. And Johnny Winter produced the record. And it was on a major label. But they didn't they never left. They they kept playing locally around, you know, the, the you know Louisiana, Texas, whatever, and we just saw them decline. 
and it was overexposure. And I, I, we could tell that, you know, that they had gone to do, from doing, you know, covers, just like everybody else did, to doing all originals, but like coming back again and again and again and again. Uh, and you can't really do that as, a, as an original band. You know, it's an all original band. You can't play every week. I don't think so anyway, you know, unless you're Billy Joel. <laughs> but, uh, but because of that, we said, you know, we really need to get out of here. We were doing about as good as we were going to do with the clubs that we were playing at. We couldn't put any more people in them, and there was really nowhere to go but down. Uh, there were, it didn't seem like any rock bands were getting record deals for New Orleans. I mean, the record companies were, you know, really just pursuing jazz or R&B groups from down there. And, um, and so we figured we needed to really go where the record companies were. And it was either New York or Los Angeles. And, uh, and we just happened to know some people from New York. And they turned us on to some club owners, a club owner actually, who we flew down to New Orleans to see us. And, uh, and he booked us at his club. And from there, he, he just really promoted the band a lot to get us gigs at other places too. And uh, so there was a buzz about the band when we came to Long Island and made the move a lot easier. But that was the, uh, that was how and why, you know. Did, did you feel a difference in crowds or are rock crowds the same everywhere? Like, you know, because New York, back then, like, Twisted Sister was around. It was like, you know, it was driving. It was just a different scene. And, you know, as a musician, did you notice, like, some crowds? Because everyone always says, you know, people from New Jersey and Philly and New York, they're mean. And, and we aren't. We're great people. We're just up front. But for you, what was it? Did you notice a difference when you all of a sudden were like, holy, holy crap. We're not in New Orleans anymore. We're in uh, New York. It heard about, you know the stereotypical New Yorker who's like, you know, nasty to you. And yeah, but when we got up here, we didn't really experience anything like that. I mean, from the very beginning, everybody was really nice to us and just normal people. Um, and it was kind of funny because uh, some of the people, I guess they were from upstate that we met along the way. They had almost like the identical accent to people from East New Orleans, a place called Chalmette. I mean, you couldn't tell the difference that I'm going this is really strange, you know. <laughs> then you have your New Orleans accent, then you got your Cajun accent, and, you know, it's the same thing up here. You know, you go into Brooklyn and Queens and Jersey and Long Island, and you can really hear there's a difference in the in the dialects, you know. So, uh, and, but, but the people were all nice. We didn't, we didn't run into that. You know, when we went into the city, we would find that, you know, people were a little more curt with you, you know, uh, but I kind of took that as being that New York City wasn't the, the the safest place to be, and it wasn't you didn't most of the people just didn't have time to be to, to be nice. You know, everybody's running around like chickens with their heads off. You know, and uh, and then you know the thing I, I remember in a diner in the diners up here was where you'd see the attitude come out of the uh, waitresses. You know. But it was a it was a Long Island thing, you know. It was the, what the, everybody expected it to be like that, you know. They'd be joking. It was a, it was like a joke, but you had to be live here to be in on it. But we got that very quickly, you know. And uh, yeah, we never had any really bad experiences here at all. So so you move you moved to Long Island. Now, how long until you start getting recognized and get that record deal? Because your first album really blew up. Yeah, it took forever. 
we, uh, you know, we came up here in 1977, and we had we did some demos uh, in Douglaston at a place called the Workshop, and the demos came out great. And uh, our manager at the time, Phil Basile, shopped it to Atlantic, uh, shopped to RCA, a uh, bunch of different labels. You know, he had managed the Vanilla Fudge, so he had a lot of a lot of ends, and he just got rejected everywhere. You know. Uh, Labels would just say things like, "Yeah, they're real, they're good, but you know they're they're a little dated." If this stuff had come out like ten years ago, if you came to me ten years ago with this, this we we would have signed this right away. But this this kind of stuff is kind of over. So, and he worked hard doing it, you know. And but he owned a lot of clubs too, nightclubs. And eventually, he became so involved with the clubs, and he had been rejected from the band. The band's still working; we're doing great. But it did it just wasn't happening. Uh, and it wasn't until we uh, we got approached by a program director from the radio station here on Long Island, WBAB, about giving him a demo of ours to put on their, what they call their homegrown show. They did it like every afternoon, and all the local bands would give the station their original songs, and they would play it, play them. So we gave them uh, one demo, and then, he asked for another, and you know, before we knew it, if we had we were drawing a lot of people at this point. This is like 1979, and before we knew it, he was playing. He he told us we're we're putting your music into regular rotation now, you know, and you know that just didn't happen. I don't think any band before that had gotten gone from home homegrown to regular rotation without getting a record deal, you know, and. Uh, and so he had us on there, and we, we were like the most requested band at the station for you know, a long, long time. Because people, the only place they could hear it was on his station. And uh, there was no record out. And so he, he was instrumental in getting us the record deal. Uh, all that airplay and his belief in the band. And I think he was just having fun with it because, you know, when the Atlantic Records guys came around trying to push something new on him, he'd say, man... You guys are missing the boat, you know, here. We got we got this band here that's got the top five requests, you know, this local band with all their uh, original songs. You know, of course, the guy from Atlantic would say, yeah, well, well, that's great, you know, top five uh, of all the local bands, huh? He says, no, no, not the top five of all the local bands. Number six is Led Zeppelin, you know, All of My Love, ACDC, Back in Black. That's the number seven song. And it was just funny because it was a lot of Atlantic acts that happened to fill out the rest of the, the top ten. And, uh, and that had more to do with us getting the record deal than anything else. You know? So once you get the deal, what's it like? I mean, you sit there, you know, do they put you right in the studio? Do they sit there and they say, you know, we're going to put an album out and then put you on a tour? I mean, what is your, the, the steps till you get that first album? And, and you got market support because the album sold a lot. And, you know, you hear a lot of times people say, oh, yeah, you know, we got signed and then the label changed owners. And then we got basically pushed back in the bargain bin. But what was the process to you guys getting that first album made? And why do you think it was so popular? Well, I think we had so many fans that that's what made it popular to begin with. I mean, at, when it when it came out, uh, it was the fastest selling debut record that Atlantic had ever had, um, and that just what that meant was that uh, 
none of the none of us had ever been on a record before the three of us and so we were all virgin musicians to record label and no person who had not had a record out or had any notoriety had ever sold that many records that fast we sold uh, 75,000 copies in the first 10 days um, and it was because we had such a huge following in the Northeast and down in uh, Louisiana um, as far as like the process it it you know Atlantic really left it left it after we got Jack Douglas as a producer it was kind of like left to us as to what we were going to do um, I think because we had had so much success you know, already, and we were on the radio here, uh, they didn't think they needed to mess with whatever formula we had. Uh, so we had, you know, we made a list of producers. Jack Douglas was at the top uh, because of his, you know, uh, Don Lennon producing that. That was the last thing he had produced at that point. And, uh, and then uh, Aerosmith and Cheap Trick. And, you know, I love those records. And so the overall package that he could offer was great so we Atlantic got in touch with him and he listened to the stuff and said he'd be he'd love to do it and Atlantic was very happy with that because Jack had never produced a record for Atlantic ever it was going to be the first time so they were very happy to have him and um, and then once we got in the studio you know they left us alone and we just we just started recording the songs we had been playing for you know, all these years, you know, they were kind of already selected, like I said, from fans and their reactions to the song. So now, now who did, who did... Now, now getting back to the, the, the promotion thing, we sold those 75,000 records in like two weeks. And then all of a sudden nothing, right? It's like we, our fans have bought it all. It's trickling now, you know, to their friends in both of these areas. Uh, we've got radio stations in New Orleans and New York playing the song, and so we're still getting some sales, but it's kind of normalized itself. But nowhere else in the country are we are we selling any records, you know, not not any to speak of. And so months go by, you know, we're wondering, hey, you sold all these records, why aren't you pumping money into this thing? It obviously worked, you know. Uh, but they what they were doing was they 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 were sending out. A and for promotion guys to get the thing played on the radio, and they did get uh, "Who's Behind the Door." I forget whether whether it was "Who's Behind the Door" or "Tell Me What You Want." Played at a lot of stations, and one of the stations that they got it played at was uh, Casey in St. Louis, and it became popular on Casey, and they put it in a heavy rotation on on the station, and still that's not worth putting, you know, advertising dollars into it. It's just, you know, okay, you get an airplay. Let's make, that's got to translate into record sales. Well, it did. You know, we sold seven records. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they were like, you know, ecstatic, you know, because they, they knew that these were records sold because of the radio airplay. And then at that point, they called us back to New York and said, we want you to make a video. There's this thing, MTV, and it had just come out, and we're going to make a video. So they did that. And so we had the first two videos of ours. We got really good airplay on MTV. And that's when they really started to promote the band. And then from I, there, you know. I, I want to ask you about the tell me what you want video. Because, you know, I, I grew up watching videos. And, and it is, it's such a 80s rock video. Like, it's just cool. Because they have you, like, 
talking to the body, then you kiss the the head falls off. But what was that like for you? Because you guys were, you know, you were musicians in in the you know playing live for a long time. You were cutting your teeth. You had your chops. I mean, it's not like you were an overnight success. And all of a sudden, they just throw you in. Did you have any say in the video, or did they just say, "Okay, Randy, here's what you do," and then you're gonna kiss a woman, but it's it's a it's not her. It's a mannequin head. I mean, how? Or the woman is in plastic, you know, she was wrapped up the ground. Um, that particular video, they 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 picked the directors. I mean, there wasn't any time to, like, discuss what, what or how. Uh, MTV was still new. Nobody was, like, the director of videos at that point, you know. So everybody was trying their hand at it. And the guy who directed the Tell Me What You Want video had worked with uh, Fellini, you know, on you know for a long time. And he was like a protege. And so he wanted to, he, you know, he, they got him to do the video. And his idea was to, like, Fellini-ize the Tell Me What You Want video. And that's why all this weirdness came into play, you know. And uh, he really wrote the, you know, the script and everything. And we would say certain things, you know, or make our, give our two cents if, if something we did, if we thought something wasn't cool at all, you know. Or if it just rubbed us too wrong. But uh, in general, we just went in there and just, like, you know, took the director's orders, you know, and uh, and the videos came out. Uh, the same thing with uh, Who's Behind the Door. It was a different director, but, you know, they'd come up with a uh, kind of a sequence of events that was going to happen. And it didn't really completely, you know, match what I had envisioned for the song. But it was close. It was in the ballpark, and we weren't making... Uh, you know, close encounters of the third top kind. So budget was limited and, uh, you know, so, but, it, but it worked, you know, they got a lot of airplay from it. People still remember the videos, you know, they're de definitely kind of quirky. Uh, you know, we didn't have any of the, 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 there was no like rock band persona in any of them, you know, we're not like rocking out on stage or, <laughs> you know, any of that stuff. And uh, so it was very experimental which I think is kind of cool because when you look back on it, they're, you can definitely say they're different than whatever else was out at that time. You know? Now, now as, you're, as your MTV's playing, you guys, you're getting sales, who do they put you out on tour with? Because everyone always says they open for big acts. Loverboy. Loverboy. We had a connection to Loverboy through uh, a guy named Don Fox who owned a company called Beaver Productions down in the south. And, and Beaver had been the big promoter all in the Southeast. I mean, they promoted shows all over the country, but Don was huge and he liked the band and he had gotten Loverboy. He liked Loverboy and he had gotten them on a tour with Journey when they first started. And now he's going to call in the favor with them. And he did, you know, he got us on tour with Loverboy and, uh, you know, so we opened with that for them, you know, for a long time. And it, uh, it really, you know, it was, it was great. You know, it was a different environment, certainly. Um, we did, we toured with Loverboy, then we, uh, we also toured with Cheap Trick on that tour, and, you know, I, I'm sure, I mean, I don't know exactly how it all, the mechanics of it, but, you know, it's who you know, and I'm, I'm sure Jack Douglas, it didn't hurt, you know, to, to have him, uh, you know, rooting for us for the Cheap Trick thing, and, um, you know, it, those were the, those were really the two, two biggest bands that we opened for. I think really later, wait, I, I take, you know, later on we did open up for uh, 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 REO Speedwagon and Survivor. 
So there was a three three band bill, and we did that for a while too. So all of that was good in getting exposure. And, uh, now, now as a musician, as a, and you're the front man, how is it going from the clubs you're playing in New York? Probably held a few thousand. I'm guessing you know rock clubs to playing arenas. I mean, our cheap trip would play the Spectrum in Philly. You know, thirty thousand. As a front man, how do you acclimate to that? Because it's it's got to be a little bit different. I mean, you're going on stage. The stage is bigger. You have people and at concerts, they almost put you behind you. You know, people with the real crappy seats, they get stuck behind. But how do you, as a front man, acclimate to that? How do you sit there and go, okay, I have to expand my performing because I'm, I have to play bigger now? Yeah. I mean, of course, we had to cover a larger stage physically. Um we couldn't, the, the one thing that really surprised me was how I couldn't see 99% of the audience when we were playing. They were completely in dark because of the, they've got great lights, these arenas, you know, and, and they're blinding. And I could see like a, a couple of rows in the front, you know. And so you're talking to a couple of people who aren't really representative of the whole building. And uh, I think for us, because we're an opening act, it was going to be about the music no matter what we weren't going to, we couldn't be Van Halen. I couldn't be doing flips with my, with my guitar on me. So we were, uh, you know, we just wanted to get the music, you know, going from song to song, pretty much, you know, we kept the dialogue short during that first tour. And we only had like 40 minutes to play 45 minutes as an opening act. And so we tried to do as much of the uh, first album as we did. We intentionally did not do any, covers at all you know even though uh you know we were always tempted to throw in a, a zeppelin song here or there but uh i think it was a good decision not to you know because most of the people that we played in front of didn't know anything about our past or anything if we got to long island or new york uh, that was the place to do that kind of a thing and um you know i think i think we acclimated okay felix and i had been playing for a while and we had done uh a lot of shows he would he had been the front man so if i had to change guitars uh you know and couldn't be on the mic you know he could take over and talk to the audience and you know vice versa so it worked out it wasn't really that much of a change except for not being able to see everybody you know now how much pressure was it coming out with a second album because you know and people always say you have a long time to write the first album and, and back then I mean, as you said earlier, how the Beatles came out with three in a year is just insane. But back then, when you look at artists in the early 80s, it is album, album, album a lot of times. And people what people who don't know anything about the music businesses, they don't understand it. When you guys are on the road, it's all not fun and games. Like you have to get up and go to radio stations. You have to stay in a bus. And you have to perform and i know as a performer when you come off stage you have that buzz going you know you just have a high you don't want to sit down and write that's the last thing you want to do so how was it for you when the was the record company breathing down your throat yet because you had a first album or did they say you have a deadline this is what you have to do and how does that work as a writer well i mean they you know we knew we had to do a second record so there wasn't ever a time when they said come on, what are you waiting for? Because we went right in and started doing demos. I mean, I had written enough material to, you know, to go back in. But the material, some of it we'd never played. A lot of it we had played, but just didn't use it for the first record. Um, 
but in in general it was tough it was uh you know i think the fact that we were together for eight years had helped a lot in that we did have a lot of scraps laying around that that i was able to turn into songs um but it wasn't when we were on the road for that first record, I mean, we were partying. We were just having a good time, you know. So even when we got off the stage, I mean, we didn't, when we went on stage, we were completely sober. But, you know, after that, you know, who knows where we'd end up for the next rest of the night, the next day. And uh, and that was kind of continued through the whole tour. And, you know, oh, we got these songs. Well, I'll, I'll write these songs. I'll write these songs. And then you get off the road and you realize, wow, I didn't write one freaking song. The whole time I was out there, you know, so we we made the second record, and I did write one song while we were doing the record uh, lullaby that went on the second record, but for the most part it was a it was a hodgepodge of uh, uh, pieces that I put together or songs that had never been completed, and thank God I had those, uh, so I was determined to not let that happen again. So when we went out on the road for the second album. We were touring with Sammy Hager. I was just, I wrote every single day. I mean, I would, you know, get, go to sleep. I stopped partying. I got, uh, you know, I, I would drive in the truck, you know, whatever it was to get away from, from as many people as I could and just, you know, be able to focus on writing. And I wrote the whole third album during that, you know, experience on the road, which, uh, and I was very proud of it. You know, I said, okay, well, now I know I can do this. You know, I could do it for every record i could get the record finished write another record bop 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 and do that you know uh and it was just kind of ironic that that record was when atlantic said you know we're dropping you <laughs> the third record you know I, but i it <clears throat> you know it was disappointing but but i wasn't disappointed in in uh in the band or myself for writing because i you know i know what a, a good song is and i thought i had written quite a few good songs for that third record you know we just didn't have the uh didn't have the push and and we got we also got caught in the bon jovi avalanche you know that happened in 1986 and uh we produced the record ourselves so we didn't have uh there was there wasn't a whole lot to talk about here you know with the with the third zebra record um you know i'm getting kind of off the the the, the track here but what really turned out interesting was that uh, uh the guy who had produced the lover boy records bruce Fairbairn. He wanted to produce the third Zebra record. He was interested. He had told Atlantic that, and um, and we and we said, "Look, we, we've got this. Listen to this. This is what we did with our, you know, ourselves." And we had done the demos before, and uh, Atlantic heard it and said, "That's fine. You know, you produce the record. You know, you guys can do it." So that's what we did, and, and Bruce went on to to produce "Slippery When Wet." <laughs> So okay, I'm not going to do these guys <laughs> and, and and crush us, you know, in the middle of the tour. It was pretty funny. You go to a radio station and, uh, you know, you're expecting questions and they're going, well, what do you think about this Bon Jovi phenomenon? You know, we're going, yeah, it's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah. Now, when you were when you were on the writing that third album, what was your writing process? Were you a music first, then words? Were you a I'm going to get an idea in the morning and then later you, you write it down and you go, it'll come to me. Cause for me, for joke writing, they, they pop in my head. I can't just say, I know people said I can. And I, sometimes I say to my wife, you think this is funny? And she goes, no. And if I think it's funny, I go, well, you don't know anything. But if she goes, Oh yeah, I go, okay. I, I can post it on Facebook as a joke. 
But for right. you, what was what was your process? Were you a very, you know, sit down and I have to write a song, or were you saying I want to write a song, but I don't want to push myself, and so I right. feel like I'm not creative? Well, one thing I didn't do is try to write entire songs in one session. You know, uh, my songwriting process had always been that the music was first, the melody is first, lyrics can be last, you know, because to me, you know, all the songs I really liked that I liked the best, I didn't care what they were singing about, you know, I didn't, half of them, I couldn't even understand what the words were, you know, some of the Led Zeppelin songs, you know, it was like, who knows, what, who cares what he's talking about, you know, <laughs> it was just, it sounded great. So I would always write, you know, pieces and they would come, it would just, I'd write the stuff that came easily, you know, and if I wrote something and I came up with a second part for it right then, I'd put it down. I might try to work with it a little more, but if something wasn't coming quickly, I would move right on to something else. And I would just put these on, you know, all these little pieces on cassette tapes. And then when, it, when I thought I had enough material, I would go back through them and mark down the numbers of where each part was and try to describe them as well as I could to remember what they were. And then, you know, go back through it. And, and inevitably what would happen is, is that I'd be using, you know, something I wrote on day, you know, one with something I wrote on day 40, you know, and combining them into a song, you know, uh, if the tempos matched, if they were close, maybe the same key or maybe not, it didn't matter. I would just, you know, change the key of the thing. And, but the main thing for me was they needed to move. The sections needed to move and move you emotionally. I didn't want it to just be a forced song. Uh, and, I, and I really felt that even uh, Lullaby, you know, the one that I did write for the second record, uh, I didn't write it all at once. I had a, I had a nice verse, and, um, but I had no chorus for the song. And I actually dreamed the chorus and woke up and I said, that's a great chorus. I'm getting out of bed right now, no matter how tired I am. And I put it down, and that's how that came up. So the process is always different. Um, you know, it, it'd be great to sit. I, I did write Tell Me What You Want all at once, you know. But that was like at 8 o'clock in the morning after we had played <laughs> Speaks, you know, one of the clubs in Long Island. And I was pretty trashed. But <clears throat> that's not, that was like the exception to the rule, you know. Um, most of them, you know. Like I said, you know, I, I certainly wasn't any Paul McCartney or John Lennon just writing the stuff, and every song's a hit. <laughs> right. Now, after the the album, your third album, you know, the record company got Bon Jovi happened. What yeah. what did you think your guys, your future would be? Because you know, you just played in L.A. a bunch of shows, and, and you're still playing. But at that point, you've been together for a while, and your your identity is Zebra. I mean, you know, that's what your identity is. I'm sure anyone is in a band. People know it. What did you think? What direction did you want to go in? Um, I mean, everybody was kind of let down that Atlantic had dropped us, and um, we were we were going to make a demo and maybe or, or put something together and, and maybe shop to another label. We still had management. Uh, Mark Puma was managing us at the time, and he had he managed Twisted Sister also. Um, but we were, you know, I, I had started to write with some other people at that point also. I wrote some songs with a guy uh, that we had met when we first came to New York, a guy named Mark Hitt, who was in a band called Rat Race Choir, one of my favorite guitarists. And uh, he and I got together and we wrote 
wrote quite a few songs together. So I was starting to, you know, kind of branch out uh, as far as the creative process went, you know. And um, and we were still playing. We were still making great money, you know. I mean, we uh, even when we got the record deal, I mean, we took a big cut in pay when we went out on the road, you know. But we were doing well, and I just figured, you know, well, this is kind of the way it could be for as long as we can make it last. And we just were back to playing, uh, you know, New York and New Orleans a lot. And then, you know, some of the other cities where we had done well, we would go to St. Louis, we'd be down in Florida. And I don't think anybody had any specific plans to do anything. And that went on for a, a, a couple of years. Uh, we had tried to get interest from labels. Most of the labels, you know, at that point, you know, weren't interested in, in Zebra. They were, uh, it was it was more about the hair bands at that point, and we certainly weren't a hair band, you know. Um, and then all of a sudden Atlantic calls me up and wants me to do a solo record. And, uh, and I'm like, well, why don't we just do another Zebra record? And they didn't want to do that. They wanted me to do a, a solo record. And, and now they were kind of directing how this was going to go a lot more than they did with Zebra, and uh, and so it was a whole other process. Then you know I did the record. The band never stopped playing. Zebra kept playing. I had no intention of breaking breaking up Zebra over this, but uh, but it was you know it was kind of a weird period. Now now you're in the Louisiana and Long Island Music Hall of Fame. That must make you feel great. You're in two Hall of Fames, and there are two. I mean, how does? Did they just sit there and like say, "Hey, you know, Randy Zebra, we're going to put you in the Hall of Fame." I mean, or is what was the process like? Is there an award ceremony, or is it just they send you a plaque, or what is it? Because it's, it's it's a big accomplishment. Yeah, they uh, well in Louisiana, we were playing at a theater, and they presented it to us at our show. Um, and you know, being from Louisiana, okay, we understood. You know, you're from Louisiana, you've done well. Okay, we got into the Hall of Fame, and it was, you know, very flattering. Uh, New York was a different thing, though, because the rules for the Long Island Music uh, Hall of Fame was were different. You know, you needed to be, or somebody needed to be a native of New York or, you know, this area, and none of us were. And they actually bent the rules for us because we were so known as a Long Island band. A lot of people thought we grew up here, um, that they bent the rules and they just decided, you know, we're going to put Zebra in the, in the Hall of Fame. So we were very flattered uh, that they did that. And uh, we got, there was an award ceremony at, um, at the Paramount, actually, uh, where they, you know, had a bunch of people who were inducted uh, and, uh, and then, you know, inducted and got into the hall that, uh, at the Paramount. We played a couple of songs and, Bob Buckman presented it to us, which I thought was a great thing, you know. Um, but yeah, to have, be in two Hall of Fames, yeah, <laughs> it's a little different, right? It's cool. Now, now you just played in California. I know you're out there. Uh, I think you played the, was it the, the Coach House? No. House, yeah. Yeah. And now, what is it like after all these years, you know, you go and, and there's fans. And, you know, because you haven't produced a lot of music over the years. I mean, do you guys still... Is there anything on tap to write new music? Or when you do a show, will you throw any... Have you done any new originals you throw on the show to get the get the, the crowd like, oh, we haven't heard that before? Right. Uh, the answer is no. <laughs> we hadn't done it since we did the fourth Zebra record, which came out in 2001, 2003, something like that. Um, 
I've been writing, you know, I wrote, been writing for the last 20 years and I had a lot of stuff and I kept threatening to make a record, but, you know, we just didn't do it between whatever else I was involved in or Felix and Guy, everybody was involved in different projects and we're making, uh, making a living and, and the records certainly weren't going to make us any more money. And, uh, that, I don't think that's really the reason we didn't put anything out, but yeah, I think it was a reason that we didn't, we, I, we didn't even, I didn't even arrange a song for the band to play. So there was no opportunity to even, you know, I just had all these pieces, great ideas for songs and lyrics weren't done, but you know, this will be a great song. I had a melody and a, like I told you, my songwriting process. Um, and for the last 10 years, people would be interviewing us saying, yeah, you know, are y'all working on anything new? And we always were thinking about, yeah, we're going to do something new. It's coming out next year, you know. And of course, we're we're just uh, chicken little here, you know. <laughs> and uh, but this, we we actually have started working on the new material now in the last couple of months. Um, and the process has been done pretty much over Zoom because Guy lives down in Louisiana, so I've been working with Guy over Zoom. He's got a whole great drum setup where he does videos and stuff and uh and we've been working on on the new material and so something's going to happen very soon i've got a lot of uh the songs are, are uh, arranged now and uh, i would be surprised let's say if we don't have the record out next year now what were the shows like in california were you, were you enjoying it because i mean you guys probably do not as many shows anymore but is it is it still that that feeling when you get up there, you know, all these years later and it's the three of you guys together? I mean, do you, does, you, does you still spark that energy? Because like me, I don't perform a lot, but I, I'll do a show every few months. And when I go on stage, it's great. But then I go, yeah, I don't want to drive an hour and a half for that. I'll, I'd rather stay at home on a Saturday. But when you get up, it comes back to you. But for you guys, what is it like? Because you have, as I said, these fans who have been following you since 80, I mean, you think about it, 83 is 40 years. You have people have been following you for 40 years. So do the, do the fans just just still love you? I mean, what's it like when you're playing with a, a really strong fan base? Well, it's, it's amazing, you know. Uh, the fans are the reason we're out there, uh, of course, you know. I mean, we're, we're, we're all at that right at 70, you know. Uh, guy turned 72, uh, this year, and uh, Felix just turned 70. <clears throat> I'm the youngest. But, um, yeah, we could be home hanging out, you know, but we love playing, and everybody's still healthy, and everybody's still alive, and the fans are still, it, they're like little kids, you know? It's like you get on stage, and you see these older people, but you can see that same gleam in their eyes that they had when you were playing for them 40 years ago. And, uh, and we've, uh, of course, over 40 years, you develop friends you know a lot of those fans became friends uh, and at least acquaintances so it even takes on a, a more special meaning you know we get to interact a little more with them now than we could have back then on a different level and uh and we're playing good that i mean they're happy the, the the sound is good we make sure that the shows you know are as good as they were back then or as close as we can get them to back then and uh you know, California was a great example. You know, we did three shows out there, and uh, we had great audiences for every one of them. And, uh, you know, everybody seemed to love the show, you know. Now, you have a few acoustic shows coming up, or solo shows. What what are you doing a solo show? And is that is that just you playing zebra songs? Do you play covers? Do you play other things? Or, or what? if someone comes, I know you're playing in Glendale 
California, and you have one in uh, on Long Island somewhere in January. Um, I think so. Where was it? It's, uh, yeah. it's actually in Arizona. Glendale. No, Glendale's the first one in December. Then you have something I saw in, uh, you have something listed on your site in Long Island in January. Yeah, yeah, Long Island. Yeah. So, so what, what do people see when they come to see the solo show? Uh, well, the thing, the, the one big difference is, is that they can really, like, ask me for songs. You know, can you play this? Would you play that? Um, I do, like, all the stuff that I grew up with. You know, it's like, you know, remember when you were a kid, you know, and, and you, I mean, I don't know how it is for comedians, but, you know, you, yeah, I would think that you probably tried to emulate some of your favorite comedians along the way, you know and do it at home or whatever, or, or at least have some sort of appreciation. So when I was a kid, you know, I, in high school and stuff, my favorite music was, uh, you know, the Led Zeppelin, the Yes, the Pink Floyd, uh, all these, all these bands of Beatles and stuff. So that's what I play. Uh, a lot of that, of course I do any of the zebra stuff, you know, any of the zebra songs. And I also do the, uh, stuff I did on my solo record. Um, and um, so I've got a lot of material and, you know, I've, I've played a lot of different places. Some people say, man, you should be playing there. You should, you shouldn't be playing a comic book store. <laughs> I said, yeah, but you know, they wanted me to play and the guy's a big fan and his, his, it was a surprise. And so I do it almost, almost anywhere or I have, you know, in the last 25 years. And, uh, and so what they see is, you know, me, you know, I'm not having to, I'm not playing anything that I have to play because it, you know, the crowd wants to hear it. It's not like I'm a top 40 band or wedding band or anything like that. Uh, and so I enjoy it. You know, I, I can get up and, you know, I mean, it's sometimes it's harder than others if I'm just physically not, you know, healthy, but, uh, but I, I enjoy it. I think if I had to do songs I just wasn't into, it wouldn't be as fun. I, I don't think I'd be doing that. I'd be probably looking into doing some other line of work. But um, but it's been good. You know, the the, the classic rock that, that I enjoyed way back in the day, I think, had a lot of influence on what I wrote. You know, I wasn't, you know, the only time I was really into pop, pop, quote unquote, music was in the early 60s when the Beatles came out. And you had the Beatles and you had the Dave Clark Five and, uh, you know, Paul Revere and the Raiders and Rolling Stones. And and that was my pop period. Uh, but after that, it was like Almond Brothers, uh, Hendrix, Grand Funk, uh, you know, and it was a, a much, it was a different, different, whole different thing, FM radio. And I kind of, that was what, what drew me. Um, so that's the way I kind of wrote. And I always thought that even back then that, you know, some of these songs, the Zeppelin, the Floyd, that I couldn't imagine them not being huge 50 years from then. You know, I was just saying to myself, this this stuff is that good. You know, you don't, this is not, you know, something some, that's just going to drift away. Because you saw all these pop bands, the song would come out, it'd be number one, you know, they go out tour, and then you never heard of them again. You know, they might hear it off the radio, but these bands, it was lasting, and they weren't putting albums out you know, nearly as much as uh, some of these pop records had to come out. So I think that influenced my writing, and I discarded a lot of stuff that I wrote uh, because it was always in my mind, would I want to listen to this 10 years from now, you know? 
is what I'm saying in this song going to have any validity to me 10 years from now? Or is it going to be like, oh my God, I can't believe I said that or, and stuff. So, uh, and it, it's been good for me. So I haven't, you know, I haven't looked back and regretted, you know, really regretted anything that I wrote. You know, and obviously uh, the stuff has lasted with the fans. They seem to still enjoy it. And uh, so, uh, Anyway, what was the question? <laughs> that, was, I, I, that was great. I want to I want to thank you for coming on today. This was great. Um, people, uh, you know, you can go see Zebra. They'll be playing in the Philly area on November twenty fifth. But if you go to the door dot com, it has all their their it's listed. So go go you know support live music. You know, live entertainment. You get out of the house. You have fun. You well, I don't. When I go to concerts, I don't drink because I don't want to pay fifteen dollars for a beer. But I. <laughs> Like <laughs> uh, you know, but you have fun. So go see live music and uh, and any, anything else. Anything else you want to add? Any 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 other news coming up? We're, we're trying to promote. We've had the website or the uh, the web address zebraband.com for a long time. We just hadn't used it. We used the door, like you just said. But we're trying. I think zebraband.com is easier for people to remember. People say, "Why did you pick the door?" And they, they don't get the reference to the song. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to spread that word a little bit, zebravan.com. And, uh, you know, they can find us on Facebook. You know, if they're looking for me, you really need to put in Randy Jackson Zebra at the end. There's lots of Randy Jacksons out there. and uh, But if you put the Zebra in at the end, then you'll be able to find, you know, me on Facebook and, and what we're doing. So people, go check Randy out. Go check Zebra out. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 975 episodes there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Facebook, um, Cooper. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Randy.